CPD Health Courses. Dry needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face -face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com. Good evening and welcome everyone. Uh, before I introduce um, our first guests, I'll tell you that tonight is a two-part uh, program and uh, we've got uh, two fantastic guests in a moment, followed by another uh, guest from Europe as well. So let's get going. And also remember that you can uh, send me your questions, uh, just like you've uh, sent those messages that you can hear me on the chat window as well, and we'll be having time to uh, ask some questions of our guests later on. So it's an international affair tonight. We're going to Europe and the UK. First guests are Dr. Michael Harris and Dr. Gordon Taylor. They're going to talk to us about their fantastic book, Medical Statistics Made Easy. And for one lucky winner, they're going to get a copy of their book. Then we'll be talking to Professor Orlando Mayoral from Toledo, Spain. He's going to talk to us about his beautifully designed research involving sham dry needling and the efficacy of myofascial trigger point dry needling in the prevention of pain after total knee arthroplasty. And so let me uh, first introduce Dr. Gordon and Michael from uh, Bath in the UK. Dr. Michael Harris is a GP and a lecturer in general practice in Bath. He teaches nurses, medical students and GPs. Uh, he's, a qualified, he's qualified as a medical doctor in London and was a GP in a small town for 27 years and now working in a medical education role and research. He's written three books with Dr. Gordon Taylor, who is our next guest. Dr. Gordon Taylor is a, has a PhD as a reader in medical statistics at the University of Bath. His main role is in the teaching, support and supervision of healthcare professionals involved in non-commercial research. He's worked as a university applied medical statistician for nearly 20 years after obtaining a PhD in applied mathematics. Has co-authored more than 100 peer review articles plus the three books written with uh, Dr. Michael Harris. So gentlemen, welcome to our program. Welcome to CPD Health Courses live webinar presentation. Hi, and thank you. Thank you. That's a pleasure. Now, although you've written three books, guys, uh, we're talking about one of those books, which is the medical statistics made easy. Now, the first question is medical statistics made easy. Is that an oxymoron? Surely. Medical statistics is not easy. Well, I, I, I would guess that given a set of data that 9 out of 10 of your audience of practitioners could ready, readily calculate the mean, and that most know that 9 out of the 10 is the same as 90%. Now, those are easy statistical concepts to understand and calculate, but 10% of your practitioners um, probably will have more difficulty being confident about those or understanding those, and that's something that we cater for in the book. So the first chapters in the book explain means and percentages in simple terms. Now, sure, many statistical, calc statistical calculations are really complex to do, but your practitioners and, and I don't need to be able to do those calculations. That's Gordon's job, uh, but uh, your practitioners and I simply need to be able to understand the results of those statistical tests. 
That's a, that's a very good answer and a very good comeback. So it's not an oxymoron. What you're saying is that we don't need to know um, how our TV works in the background. We know how to turn it on. We know how to understand what's coming out of it. We don't need to know the fine electronics that, and the motherboard and how that works. It's, it's pretty much like that. It, it, exactly. So if you're looking at a, a research paper and it, it lists or that there's one section that will list all the statistical tests that were done, you don't need to know the details of what those um, tests are, how they are calculated, uh, the, uh, the, the software that was used to calculate them. Uh, you, you need to know the the bottom line of those, which may be percentage or maybe uh, maybe a p-value or confidence interval. Yeah. And if you can understand those, then knowing about how they're calculated or knowing how your television actually works is is not necessary. Absolutely. That, that's a good answer. And uh, you, you've uh, written uh, two other books, and one of those is uh, Clinical Evidence Made Easy. Is that right? What, what's the other one? Um, you mean what is Clinical Evidence Made Easy? Uh, we, I think you mean? So you've written two books, uh, Medical Statistics Made Easy and Clinical Evidence Made Easy. Is okay. that right? I have indeed. Um, well, the third book we wrote... Uh, is called Catch Up Mathematics and Statistics, um, um, and in some ways this 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 was uh, more of a a text for um, for for new uh, university students maybe who wouldn't have done mathematics or statistics as part of their degree yeah. you know, and were maybe going to a sort of science uh, or medical type uh, undergraduate qualification. Okay. And the, the and the clinical evidence made easy book is that's designed for clinicians to understand how to read research papers and yeah. other clinical evidence and how to appraise that evidence, mm, how to yeah. work out what, what they really mean and how valid they are. Right, so it's a really a, a good accompaniment to the, the uh, medical statistics made easy too. Yeah, we, 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 we designed them to complement each other. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Now, there's the real um, basis to, to your book and, and the real function of your book is so that I can read a research paper and uh, find out whether or not I can uh, apply a certain technique or certain advice that I might give to a patient and has it got some backing to that uh, particular advice or my, my treatment. Would, would that be where you're coming from? Yes, uh, I, I, I think you're exactly right. Is so you can read you can read a, a paper about dry needling, see what the results are, and make your own mind up as to how, whether those results should make you change your management of a patient. Yeah. Okay. So now, surely you can't be telling me that words such as well or terms like p-values, uh, chi-squared, confidence intervals, the student t-test other such complicated terms, they're all a bit scary to some people. And um, what I love about your book is that you've made them unscary. You've made them quite uh, friendly and you've also made them very relevant. They, 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 you tell us uh, about it in the book, you explain the relevance of, of them and they're not all that important. Not everyone is as important as the other. Tell me how you've classified these terms in your book so that practitioners can really look at something and go, I really need to know that, but I don't really need to know that term. Okay, so um, uh, so when we, when we started this book, we just like, how are we going to decide what we're going to put in, in, in the book? And, um, and Michael and I, uh, we chose four leading journals, uh, so we chose The Lancet, we chose the, the BMJ, we chose JAMA, and, 
and the oh yeah sorry oh and the New England Journal of Medicine so I forgot that for a second there uh, and we we selected 50 uh, recent papers um, that had some sort of quantitative element in them uh, and we went through every single paper and whenever they mentioned a statistical term we wrote that down and we counted how many that they were used so so our prioritization of terms here is really about you know how often are they seen in, in the medical literature Right. Okay. That, that's great. So you really did your research. Uh, you did a statistical uh, research of how many times these things come up and therefore did a, a table pretty much and said, well, this comes up this many times, so it must be very important and so on. Indeed. Yes. Exactly how it went. Yes. Okay. It was quite right. a task as well, I have to say. Well, I'd imagine it would be. It would be, definitely. So, you know, so you obviously, so this is what you thought, but did, did you think <laughs> that there was a real problem there that you were trying to solve? Did you feel that you're getting uh, practitioners who you would uh, meet in professional uh, work that were saying that we really need some help with this? We're too busy. It was a long time ago since we did stat statistics at uh, university. Can you help? Is that where your book really came from? Why you actually wrote the book? Well, there were two things there, really. One was that people didn't know how to prioritize which uh, statistical terms that they need to understand and know about, and that's what Gordon mentioned. So, so in, in the book, we use um, uh, um, um, a, a thumbs-up mark showing which, uh, if they're five thumbs-up marks, that means it's, it's, it's really... Um, Oh, so sorry. If they're five stars, that means it's really important, and, and that it's that you need to know about it. So things like means and medians and p-values, it's really important to know about. So people can select out those, uh, can select those, and go for those, and leave some of the some of the less less important ones uh, for another time. Yeah. The the other thing is we found that the range of of how easily people understand medical statistics is is huge we get some people we, we um, uh, because I, I teach gp trainees and i find some of them have no problem at all understanding correlation and regression coefficients and things like that and other uh, we'll we get a few trainees who have difficulty knowing how to calculate a mean or how to calculate a percentage mm. So we have a huge range of um, innate understanding of these statistical things. So one of the other things we did is use a, uh, a thumbs-up symbol to symbol in the book for each chapter yeah. to illustrate how easy it is to understand these, uh, how easy it is to understand the concept. So people that have real difficulty with stats can start off with, with the ones with lots of thumbs-up signs. So so things like means and medians, which are quite easy to understand, and gradually go through the book. Uh, with and gradually getting to more complex things. Okay, that sounds good. Have you got a smiley face as well? Have you got those icons on you in your book? That, that, that was in the first first edition had smiley faces, and our publisher for some reason changed it to thumbs up in the later editions. Right. Okay. All right. Now, uh, if you had to learn only three statistical terms to be able to understand the majority of the articles that are out there, what would they be and why? It's funny, Gordon and I were just discussing that, and we, Gordon and I had had uh, a different list. So what I suggest is I give you my two most important ones, and then Gordon perhaps gives you his. And mine is, uh, it's the difference between a mean and a median. They're both measures of of uh, of, of um, of, of the midpoint of data, so difference between mean and median. And the other one is percentages. So for the, me, those are the keys. Okay. Gordon, what are your two? That, that's okay. Great. 
Um, I have to say the first of mine is, is really a concept rather than uh, rather than a term, uh, if I if I may be allowed that. Um, and and I do think this is you know one of the most you know amazing things about statistics really, um, and it's about the difference between really samples and populations, and the fact that if you like there's a large population of people out there with a particular condition, and that we can take just a small sample of them. And yet, using that small sample, we can say something about that great big population. Yeah. You know, and I do think that's really such a powerful concept uh, in statistics. Okay, I do think so. So that's powerful. And the only risk there is obviously because we are taking just a small sample from a big population. There's always a chance that we get it wrong. Mm. But at least in statistics, we know how often we get it wrong. Okay. Okay. Right, so that's that's your concept that you, you you wanted to get across, is that right? Yep, yep. And that was and what was the other one? Yeah. Oh, oh, um, well, that's three. Well, I suppose just just related to that, really. I, I suppose the whole de idea of um, uh, you know, given that you have got this idea of you've got a small sample from a big population, yeah. then this whole idea of um, confidence intervals, well, and, and p-values, which sort of separate but related. So this idea that you know, using a, a confidence interval and your small sample, you can get a good idea of what the mean would be for the whole population. So you've got an interval for that whole population mean. Okay, I got you. Okay, let's bring it back to a sort of uh, the real uh, sharp end and uh, what practitioners really uh, feel about research and so on. My feeling is this that to do a really decent double-blind RCT now, you have to eliminate so many variables and confounders that and, and pipe everything down to make it so that your um, hypothesis is either proven or not by running this study, but you've had to eliminate so many factors so that you're really only testing one thing that's happening, one intervention to a patient or a group of patients. Therefore, you're eliminating many of the things that we are uh, uh, um, challenged with in practice. Uh, and so therefore, the, the meaningfulness of a, of, a, um, of, a, of a study is not as relevant to us anymore because you've had to exclude all the things that we have to deal with in a practice, you know, whether, you know, they're, they're stressed, whether they're uh, done in their exercises, whether they've uh, run, to, uh, kept their running up or, or all these, or how old they are, all these things we have to look at when a patient comes and sees us. But for research to work, you've actually got to get rid of all that stuff and only look at one thing. So how do we, do you agree with that? And if, if you do, how do we get around that? Well, I think that's about how you critically appraise and interpret clinical evidence. So uh, when you're looking at a paper, it's not enough just to look at the conclusion of that paper. You, you, we all need to work out how that, uh, whether it's relevant to our patient population. Yeah. Um, so there are quite a few studies on, on medications, for instance, that exclude patients over 70 years old. Yes. Now, most of the patients that came to see me from day to day were over 70 years old. So those papers had limited relevance to yeah. my patient population. So that's about critically appraising the data and working out how it relates to your own population. 
Okay, all right. Now we're going to going to run a study, a little experiment actually tonight, seeing as we've got you two on here, and uh, we're going to use our audience. So um, the audience is still there. Are you all ready for this experiment? Just give us a yes or no. Are you ready to answer a question that I'm going to fire at you in a moment? All you got to do is say yes or no. You've understood, uh, Gordon and Michael. So just send those uh, yeses and nos to me. Okay, so we're getting those. Yep, everyone's happy with that. Everyone's excited and ready to go, Michael and Gordon. Okay, so. Okay. All right, so we've got listeners from around the world, actually, but predominantly Australia. They're listening to this right now. What I'd like you to do, I know I'm going to put you on the spot, but I know that you're up for this because you're very, very intelligent people with PhDs and in statistics, which is mind-boggling, quite frankly. But anyway, can you explain what the most common statistical term is in your book to our audience? using simple everyday language. Then we're going to ask our audience simple question. Did you understand what you explained to them? And then we'll work out what percentage of the audience understood your explanation. Is that is that fair enough? That sounds good to me. Okay. We're, 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 we're up for that. Okay. Well, what I think what interests me is is the difference between two different measures of the midpoint, two different sorts of average. So there's the mean and the median. Now both those words sound similar and they're both looking at the midpoint of a set of data, set of information, mm -hmm. but, but they're slightly different. So to work out the mean of a set of values, you add all the, it's, let's say you've got 10 values, you add the 10 values up and divide by 10 and that gives you the mean number, the, 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 the mean figure for those 10 values. The median is a bit different to that. For that, you put those 10 values in order, and the median value is the midpoint value. So mean, you add them up, divide by the total number, and yep. the median is the midpoint of the data. Now, in some cases, if, if the data are evenly distributed, both of those values will be about the same. But if they're outliers, so if there's there's one number, if there are a couple of numbers that are a lot higher than the others, they can be quite different. And I'll give you an example of, of what uh, how how that might work. I was listening to the radio the other day, and somebody was saying that um, people, on average, have less than two legs. Yeah. And I thought to myself, what do they mean to that? How can people have, on average, have less than two legs? And what they meant was that if you uh, that, that most people have two legs, but there are a few people that have had an amputation and only have one leg or don't have any. So the mean for that is is below two. Now in my practice I had 2,000 patients and two of them had had amputation, had had one leg amputated. So the mean number of legs for my patients was 1.99. <laughs> Right. So, so the, the the mean number of legs that, that we have in in the UK and in Australia is less than two. Now that's preposterous. That doesn't really mean anything uh, yeah. because those with less than two legs are outliers. So yeah. for that, we'd probably use the median yeah. or another figure that, that's the mode, which is right. the midpoint. So the midpoint, if you line all those patients up, uh, the midpoint is having two legs, and the commonest value, which is the mode, is having two legs. Less so it depends what. So it depends what. Um, which of those measures you use. Okay, right, so the, the results are in, guys. Are you ready? 
Okay, we're, 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 we're trembling here. <laughs> Tremble no more because with the wonders of technology, we can tell you that 100% of our audience understood your explanation. So that's proof in the pudding, if I might use that term. You are uh, very good at explaining things, which is obviously why you're talking to me right now, and you've written that book. So thank you very much, guys. You've put on the spot and you've passed with flying colors. Your, your, your audience is very generous. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, we're going to wrap up now, and um, we, we want to remind everyone that we've got a copy of uh, Gordon and Michael's book, Medical Statistics Made Easy, as a prize for you. And as a registrant of this uh, uh, webinar, you go into the draw to win that copy, and you'll uh, we'll let you know uh over the next day or so when we draw that prize. And if you don't win, don't worry. We'll also send you a link to be able to buy the book, um, which is uh, free delivery within Australia. Uh, thank you very much. So Gordon, Michael, I'd like to thank you very much uh, for your time today. It's an excellent read, an excellent book, and perhaps we can have you on again to talk about your other book, uh, the Clinical Evidence Book in the future. Gordon, Michael, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Indeed. Thank you, Wayne. That's a pleasure. And good morning to you. Okay. Now, uh, now we need to uh, move to our next guest. I'm going to see whether he is there. Orlando, are you there? Yes, I am here. Ah, wonderful. I always like the, to hear the sound of my guests when it's so far away because it's a bit embarrassing if they're not. So uh, just a moment, I'm going to introduce you, Orlando. Orlando um, is uh, joining us from Toledo in Spain. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Orlando Mayoral um, is joining us now to speak to us about his research. Uh, and he was born in Toledo in 1963, an excellent year, if I might add, because that was the year that I was born. He's a physiotherapist uh, and uh, a Bachelor of Kinesiology and Physical Medicine. He's a PhD um, and is a chairman of the board of the International Society of Myopain, honorary president of the Spanish Association of Myofascial Pain and Dry Needling. He's a lead researcher and contributor to numerous research projects author of a number of scientific articles and book chapters, and is speaker at numerous scientific conferences in different countries. He's translated to Castilian of the reference books of the manual trigger points of Simons and uh, Travell and Simons. And he's also a member of the editorial and scientific committees of Journal of Musculoskeletal Pain, Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapies, and uh, the uh, physiotherapy, issues of physiotherapy and physical and quality of life. Wow. Currently combines his care activity in the Provincial Hospital of Toledo, where his research was actually done for this webinar. And he's teaching at numerous postgraduate uh, courses taught by, uh, taught by him at many universities and other institutions around the world as, the, the role, as his role of the director of, and scholar of Simons and Travell seminars. He teaches dry needling as well. Orlando, welcome. How's your voice? Uh, well, it's not that much as uh, Darth Vader as it was yesterday. I think it's a little better. A little better. Uh, yeah, but as you can see, I'm not. I'm not in my best. In my best mood. You're not. You're not in your singing voice. That, that, that's to be sure. No, just just let me do a correction because I'm not a PhD yet. You you are doing a PhD. I'm doing it. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. So you are a PhD student. Okay, that's right. 
Okay. All right. So you're going to talk to us about your beautifully designed research involving sham dry needling and uh, your paper published in the journal Evidence-Based Complementary and Alternative Medicine is titled Efficacy of Myofascial Trigger Point Dry Needling in the Prevention of Pain After Total Knee Arthroplasty, a Randomized Double-Blinded Placebo-Controlled Trial. So the aim of your trial, um, Orlando, was to determine if dry needling could reduce pain in patients that were about to undergo knee arthroplasty as compared to placebo. The placebo in this case was the fascinating and, and clever placebo uh, that, that you're going to talk to about. So, so is that correct so far, Orlando? Yes, yes it is. Okay, all right, so uh, let's set the scene. We, you know, we know that patients who undergo knee arthroplasty have a lot of pain following the procedure. The real aim here was to try and help patients using dry needling so that uh, so they can reduce that pain, right? So you had uh, 40 people in your study. The study was carried out in the hospital environment in Toledo, Spain. Tell us how yes. you prepared your subjects. Who did you exclude and who you included and why? Uh, <clears throat> We, all, we only had to exclude people having fibromyalgia and, and other general conditions that could, uh, that could um, affect the, the treatment of trigger points, that could have as uh, perpetuating factors for trigger points. So that's it. But in the end, we didn't have to, to exclude anyone because uh, all, all of the patients didn't, wouldn't have any of these exclusion criteria. Okay, so that's good. So you, you didn't have to really exclude anyone, but you, you looked for patients who might skew the results, who patients who had other conditions such as fibromyalgia or, or, and so on. Yes. Okay, all right. So you, you examined the patients and understand there were four stages that you tested the patients at. Tell me about them. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't me. It was like one of, my, one of the collaborators of the study, uh, Teresa who did the evaluation, we evaluated uh, strength, uh, mobility, range of motion, we evaluated pain with the, with the analog visual scale, uh, we evaluated uh, what else, we did some, some, some questionnaires like WOMAC. Yes, WOMAC. Um, Yes, and of course we evaluated the presence of active and latent trigger points in okay. a certain amount of muscles in the in the lower extremity. Okay, so you you, you check them out uh, pre-operation, uh, one month, yes. three months, and six months. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. It is just a few hours before the before the surgery. Okay, all right. All these people were going to be operated in the afternoon, so we evaluated in the, in the morning. Okay, excellent. All right, well, we're getting That's the now. Okay, so the actual technique that you used when you were doing the dry needling was just to get that uh, correct, and so everyone understands, was the Hong uh, fast in and out spearing uh, type of needling. Can you just describe that for us? Yes, it is a, a technique that uh, John Hong described for uh, injections. Yes. Uh, in which uh, you do multiple rapid insertions inside the trigger point, trying to get as many uh, as many local twist responses as you can. Yes. Or until the patient says that's enough. I mean, until you reach the tolerance of the patient. That's that's the technique. Yeah. And it's usually applied on a, a weight person. Right. 
Okay. So but because these patients were uh, actually uh, either had a spinal block or they were under an anesthetic, they're not going to feel it. So you just kept going for 20, I think. 20 spears, is that right? Yes, that's it. Okay. All right. So now, you know, Orlando, the more I read about your study, and I've read it several times now, the, my, the more I find it so clever. That, that, like, for example, that the, the patients were divided into two groups. So you've got the treatment group and the sham group. Um, and um, so the, 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 some of the group in each of the, the two groups were having general anesthetic and some of them had a spinal block. So uh, you had some patients who could feel, sorry, could, could see you, but some people couldn't see you. Is that right? Well, not, not of them could see us because we, those that were with uh, spinal anesthetic, we, we put up our screen so they couldn't see anything below his waist. Yes. That's what I meant, really. That yeah. So I was getting to that. That, that you they, they could see you if you hadn't got the screen. So you decided the one final yes, block. You put a screen up so they couldn't see the person doing yes. the intervention. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's right. Okay. Now, which muscles did you uh, needle, and why did you choose them? Well, we choose muscles that usually are related to to knee pain. Yes. So we we selected adapters. Uh, Minion and uh, Longus, uh, or no, sorry, Magnus and, and Longus. Yes. Adapters, then the quadriceps, the, the, four, the four bellies of the quadriceps. Yes. We also chose the, the hamstrings, gastrocnemia, and the popliteals. Yes. And I think that now, and the, the tensile fascia lata. Yes. I think that's it. Okay. Right. So the, uh, I think you had about six groups uh, that you said, uh, TFL, hip adductors, hamstrings, quads, gastrox, and popliteus. Yes, I think I think that's okay. Yes. Okay. So, so and you and you actually marked the active and latent points uh, on the patient. Is that right? Say it again. Did you mark the the, the, the trigger points on the patients? Yes, we marked the, the trigger point. Well, uh, Teresa, this this, uh, this friend, yes, she marked with a with a blue marker the latent and with a red marker the actives. Right. Okay. Which in, in fact didn't matter because uh, it was just just for for counting purposes because we I needle every one of them. Not not only active. I needle active and latent to the points. Yes, so you needle both active and latent ones. Yeah. Okay, that's excellent. We're getting the idea. So now let's look at the results. So you need all these people, and um, you, you uh, check them out um, at one month, three months, and six months to see what what was the result of uh, your intervention, right? So yes. uh, one month you found that the um, visual analog scale is lower, and uh, score is lower, and less analgesics were required at three months was small difference between the two groups and at six months there wasn't any difference so the biggest difference was seen at one month would you agree there yes yes that, that was the only difference and the only well not the only difference but the only significant difference yeah okay the first month. excellent all right now so uh, why do you think it was at one month then why did you think there was wasn't much of a difference at three or six months oh well at, at the first month is where the Pain is highest in the in this in this uh, in the natural history of 
of pain after uh, after arthroplasty. That's that's where the pain is highest. So <clears throat> the natural history of uh, of a knee arthroplasty is is uh, the pain is going down slowly until it reaches a point. Uh, it's about six months. Uh, so in the, in the first month, in the first month where the pain is high, this is the only place where we we found differences. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you got a back. You had a chance to help them more. You, you had a more of a chance to help a patient in the first month than later on because that's when they're going yes. to have pain. Yes. Okay. Uh, by the way, you're doing very well with your voice. I know that uh, oh. you're struggling with that cold that you've got, but we really thank you for your time. We won't keep you too much longer. Thank you. I, I'm really beg your pardon for my. For my no, I know it's uh, winter, of course, in uh, Spain, so it's uh, a common thing, of course. Now, um, tell me, now you, you actually compared the natural history uh, of the visual analog scale scores uh, with these patients. So, you, how did you get the scores of the natural history? Were you looking at patients who had general knee pain, or were they people who had arthroplasty that weren't in your group? How did you get those figures? It was published in a in a, in a paper, yes. in which they studied the natural history pain of uh, people who had uh, underwent uh, uh, plastic. Right. So we we just, we just have to take those those data that were already being published. Oh, okay, so you looked at published uh, figures and and took them on board. So okay, so now your your study it, it only n equals forty. Now that's a fairly small study. Do, do you intend to do a, a bigger study in the future? Uh, <clears throat> well, um, in fact, if I would like to, if I if I would do something in this in this with the same methodology. Yes, I would probably choose not not the knee arthroplasty. I should probably choose any any other model. Right. For me, for me, one of the one of the uh, one of the problems was that um, we were trying to see the effect of dry needling in uh, knee where they have been uh, they they have underwent a very very aggressive uh, intervention. Mm -hmm. So. <clears throat> And the intervention is, is good. I mean, most most people gets better after yeah. this after this operation. So mm. so we, we have to be better than uh, than the natural course, which is a very good one, in fact. Yeah. yeah. So if I if I do something like this, I would probably I would try to choose uh, an operation in some other in some other part. Yes. I would like I would like to to find people with myofascial pain in for example the shoulder yes that are having that are having a, an abdominal uh, surgery or something else yes I see so what so which was yes. my next question actually because uh, if you if you're able to do this study and the unique thing about this study is that the patient is basically can't feel what you're doing so it's a perfect sham so therefore you which which area are you going to look at the most and from what you're or next what you're saying is that let's find something that an operation that the uh, patients don't really get better that quickly with the current treatment that they do, the rehab, and see how we can make a, a bigger uh, change to that and see if we can help them with dry needling. And you're, one of those areas is the shoulder or maybe abdominal surgery. Is that right? For example, yes. 
Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So shoulder is 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 a really painful uh, pr uh, operation, uh, and uh, it, yeah, many patients struggle with that, and obviously complications afterwards with frozen shoulder, and obviously pain management, and so on, and, and range of motion uh, problems. So maybe that's another one you can do. Yeah. We we are in fact we are we are next next month. I think we will start in a. Uh, clinical trial um, on frozen shoulder. Oh, okay. Because, because in my clinical experience is that it is one of the uh, conditions that better uh, respond to dry needling. Yes. And that really, really talks about the its efficiency. Yeah, well, that, that's great. I, I look forward to hearing more about that. Now, um, you're, you're obviously the, the study uh, did show some benefits at one month and so on. What was the feedback from the medical, uh, the, the orthopedic surgeons who were uh, doing the operations and, uh, and the feedback generally at the hospital? Are they thinking that uh, they may use dry needling as an intervention for uh, those patients who are having a knee arthroplasty now, or is it still early? No, 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 no. We're not having anything of that because, for different reasons. Um, first, first is that the orthopedic surgeons are really, uh, are really not much interested in, in this in this kind of things. Yes. For them, for them, we we were more than uh, something annoying that was there in the in the, in the surgery room making them right. waste time. Yes. And making, making them wait while I needle pay their patients. Yes, and that was a, a foreign thing that could affect the infection of the patient or whatever. Yeah. So uh, I'm very, I'm very pleased. I'm very thankful to them for letting me doing the study. But I don't, I don't think they're much interested in, in taking any conclusions about it. Yeah. I really don't think so. But anyways, my hospital has changed a lot in the since since I did this study. Yes, we changed the management. And if there was any any chance that we could uh, implement these results in the in the clinical setting, yes, that's just completely impossible now. Right, I see. Okay, it would be completely. That's just political reasons. Just right, political reasons. So it wouldn't be possible now in in the hospital that you're working in. Is that what you said? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it wouldn't be possible even to do, to reply to re repeat this study. Okay, well, that's a, that's an interesting one. Uh, we'll ask you about that in a minute. But now, obviously, you're a prolific researcher and contributor. What's the most exciting research that you're working on right now that you can tell us about? Uh, well, I'm doing two research that I'm really excited about. Uh, one of them I can't tell much because it's uh, it's uh, we have not published anything yet. So yeah. we don't want to be, we don't want, we don't want. But, but I will tell you, it's a, it's we are we're working on a on a, uh, say on an animal model. Yes. For trigger points. Yes. We have already uh, we have already created two different ways to um, let's say create trigger points in in mouse yes. in mouse in mouse muscles. Yes. So that we can check what happens when you needle a muscle with a trigger point. Right. We already, we already did uh, that study with a health muscle. With which in muscle? Mouse. Sorry? With which muscle? Uh, in, in health, in healthy muscles. Healthy muscles, right? Sorry, yes. Healthy muscle. Yeah. Uh, we found that the, the 
injury that the needle causes in the in the muscle uh, regenerates in, in about a week. Right. But the, the thing is that was made in healthy muscle. We don't know if a muscle with a particular point will regenerate in the same in the same time or right. we need more time or less time or whatever. Yes. So we want to do this exactly same study but with a muscle with yeah. a trigger point. Uh, I see. So we are now creating the model. We have uh, we have already uh, a very um, uh, how do you say this? Uh, established uh, two ways of, of creating trigger points. Yes. Um, and this is really, really, really exciting for the because the, the images we're getting are really great and wonderful. Okay. And then they are they are making up uh, things some um, some 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 change about our our thinking about trigger points and about uh, some aspects as the normality of the trigger points. But I can I can say any, many more many more about this. Right. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to when you publish, and then we'll have you back on to talk to us about that. That'll be fantastic. We're writing now something, something about that. Oh, you're writing now. Okay. So, yes. So we should we should I should be able to speak freely about this. Okay. Excellent. All right. Now, just to the other, the other study is, is one I we made last year. Yes. In which we were trying to uh, validate a clinical clinical diagnostic, diagnostic criteria. Yes. This is something very, very important now, but uh, <clears throat> because we, we have a, a diagnostic criteria for trigger points that are reliable in certain conditions, Yes. but we haven't proved that they are valid. But it's not the same to be reliable than be valid, as you know. Right, okay, yep, yep. So we are trying to validate them, and we are. We we in fact made a study, but we didn't. We couldn't approve validity of the of the diagnostic criteria because of a, a mistake in our in our methodology. Right. Uh, the Dixian we who who made a con, uh, the, calculated the 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 number of people in the control group. Yes, was wrong. So our control group was was so so small. Yes, so we have to increase the the sample now. Right, I got you. We, we are trying to we are trying to validate it using the needle AMG. Ah, uh, okay. As the as the gold standard. Right, I got you. Okay, so this is something that you're doing in your hospital now. Yes, we are now we are now increasing the sample. Ah, okay. we we already did the study. And now we are increasing the sample so that we have a control group that, that has enough subjects. Okay. So we can know the, the conclusions that we have got out okay. okay. The thing is that right now we got that the diagnostic criteria are very sensitive, but they are not very specific. I got you. Okay. But, but I think the reason the reason for that is that we, we use a very, very low uh, number of people for the subject for the for the control group. Yes. So we're trying to increase that so we can know if the results are, are those because they are those or is it because of the because of the low sample size of the control group. Right, yeah. Okay. So uh, we're working on that. 
That, that's uh, that's uh, very exciting and, and uh, certainly uh, look forward to more news about that. I know that you can't say too much at this moment, but uh, it sounds certainly very interesting. We've got a, an audience question that uh, that changes uh, uh, a little bit. We're going to go a little bit off track uh, now. And um, the, the, the question is, uh, there's been you were talking before about uh, the surgeons at your uh, hospital and their relationship with you and how they feel about dry needling and so on. Uh, now uh, there's there's a lot of debate at the moment about interrater reliability um, of identifying myofascial trigger points and and Barbero 2012 that's a, a study that's often quoted as, as saying there's good reliability uh, but that involved experienced physiotherapists so the detractors will say well yeah but you can't get uh, good reliability because unless they're experienced physiotherapists. So w what's your thoughts on this about being able to get interrater reliability? Well, I think we can get a very good interrater. I, I agree with the studies. The studies say that the, if you want to have a very good interrater reliability, you have to have training. Yes. You have to have experience. Yes. You need those things, all those two things. Yes. I would have something else. We, we, you, you need to believe into your thoughts. You have to be this what? Is, Say that again, sorry. You, you have to believe into your points. Yes, okay. Unfortunately, now I, I don't like to speak in these terms. I mean, I don't like to speak of trigger points as if it was a religion. Yes. As many people talk about that as if it was a religion. Yes. You believe or you don't believe in this. I mean, this is not a question of believing. It's a question of believing. Yes. It's a question of time. Yeah. You, you right now you just can't deny that two points exist. Yes. But of course, if you don't believe in them, you will never diagnose them. You will never learn how to diagnose. You will never yes. get the training. You will never get the experience. Yes. And you need to diagnose a two point. And another thing, if you find a two point, if you don't believe in them, you find one because you you find them. It doesn't matter if you believe in them. You just you just stumble with them. In case you you just. Uh, don't believe them do you call them something else yes so you have to have belief and you uh have to uh, be good at palpation now that's something that uh yeah experience yeah experience, experience. That's experience. Right. The, the problem is that we don't know how much of it we don't know how many years or months of experience and we don't know how how much how many hours of training are needed to, to yes. be reliable yeah. that would be a very very good experience to, to accomplish yeah, I think I think you're right. You're absolutely spot on. I spoke to uh, Jan uh, Domerholt. Uh, of course, you you know him, a good friend of yours, and uh, he and I were speaking about uh, palpation skills. And and I feel that uh, as a teacher of dry needling myself, that palpation skills are very very important. If you can't feel tissues, if you can't, if you're not uh, experienced in palpation, then you're going to have trouble finding the area which you need to needle. And, and that's something that people overlook. That uh, that it's they don't really understand that yes you do need experience to be able to find uh, trigger points and be able to treat them yes I completely agree I think well, the, the main thing to be uh, successful to the trigger point is diagnosis that, that's, a, that's the most important thing absolutely yeah yeah definitely. But, but I think it's it's not just the diagnosis of a trigger point which is important which is very important in fact yes but it's also the diagnosis of the myofascial pain syndrome that that patient is suffering. Yeah. What I, what I mean by this is that you have to know how myofascial trigger points interact among them so you can know how many uh, trigger points 
are relevant for a certain person. Yeah. Because that's that's the most important thing in the in terms of results. Yes. It's no. not just diagnosing one trigger point, but diagnosing the the set of trigger points that a patient is having in his body that is contributing to his symptoms. That's right. Uh, Exactly. So that, that's, for me, that's, that's probably that's, that's the, the most important that's yeah. the thing that makes the difference between in the results. From a clinical I, point I of agree. View. I agree entirely. I mean, patient, patients will uh, come in with uh, multiple areas of tenderness, but which one of those, which one of those areas, is actually really contributing to their presenting symptoms? That's the key. That's the trick. And uh, that comes with training and experience. It's not any. It's not. Uh, I, I always say that dry needling is not different to learning any other skill if you had to if you were a, a therapist of any kind using another intervention you're still going to have to decide which one of the the findings that you have in your examination are related to that patient's symptoms otherwise if you don't know you'll be too you'll be confused you don't know which one to treat yes drainage is great but uh, most important most important is the diagnosis yeah absolutely. Now, um, in uh, Spain, uh, uh, another question we've got in Spain, uh, there's been a lot of debate, for example, in the US about whether or not physical therapists can needle. There's a, a lot of going on there at the moment. What's the, the, the politics of dry needling within Spain and Europe generally? Oh, well, in Europe, it's not, it's not very, very homo homogeneous. Mm -hmm. So in, in Spain, there is... Uh, there is a general accept acceptance that uh, to your point is done by physical therapists. Very few, very few people, mostly some some specialties of doctors, discuss today if physical therapists are, are are the people to apply dry needling. So, although there is no there is no law that says that physical therapists can do, yes, so there is not a law that physical therapy uh, are allowed to do. There is no such a law. Yes. But the the, the, thing, the fact is that most physical therapists, most 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 professional health professionals that are applying dry needle in, in patients in Spain is are physical therapists, and most of the training programs here, even in in, in, the, in the degree and also post degree postgraduate uh, training yes. are in physical are for physical therapists. Nobody discussed today that. Uh, the pain is, is the is the professional that is uh, trained and prepared to do training. Yes. But in Europe, Europe there are, there are big differences. Yes. I mean, in, in Ireland, it's perfectly uh, it's perfectly understood. Yes. In, in like for example, in Germany or yes. in Austria, yes. it's not. We, we we're teaching a course in Austria next next month. Okay. But it's not it's not clear that physical therapists in Austria are allowed to needle. Yes. Uh, the same as in Italy. Yes. Although they are trying to get it, and they they will surely get to to middle, but but right now they are not allowed to. So there are different different countries in Europe that are where physical therapists are not allowed to to middle. So we can say this is a, a very homogeneous. In, in Great Britain, they can middle, they can do it. Yes. They are allowed to. Yes. It. Yes. That's right. For example, in Poland, they can. They they are allowed to. Yes. Uh, in Switzerland, of course, I have been last week. I was teaching a course in Switzerland. They are perfectly allowed to needle physical therapists. I mean, 
Yeah, that, that's just been confirmed by one of our audience members, uh, Alexios, who said that uh, that in Switzerland they're covered by law and happened two years ago. Is that right? Is that your understanding? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so, but you have, to, you have to take an examination. You have to have a, a training which is with a minimum of hours. I think it's 55 or something like that. Yes. And then after that, you can take an examination and you pass the examination. Then you are... You are allowed to. You're ready to, to go. You are allowed to practice regularly. Okay. Okay. I mean, not every physical therapist can do it. Uh, only you have, to, you have to prove you have it. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. Now, now, um, this, just one, one. Sorry. What one piece of advice? Uh, no, you no, finish, uh, Orlando. What advice have you got for people who are listening to this uh, webinar um, as to um, how they can improve their skills in dry needling? What's the one thing that you would say to them? I know that you teach dry needling. So, what's the one thing that you always say to your students as the best way to improve your dry needling skills? Oh. <clears throat> I, th I think I've just said it. I mean, for me, drainage is, is a very, very easy technique. Yes. I mean, it is much. I, I know manual therapies that are much more difficult to apply than drainage. Yeah. The yeah. most, the most important thing is diagnosis. Yes. It's just diagnosis of the trigger point and the diagnosis of the myofascial pain syndrome. Yes. Uh, regarding the needle, I don't know. I would say, I would say to to practice. That's that's the most that's the most important. Yes, and in fact, with dry needling, happens something something curious because as 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 uh, at the same time you are getting the the proficiency to do the dry needling, you are also getting better in palpation. Yes, if dry needling uh, obliges you to palpate, and so so as as much as you practice dry needling, you will get better in palpation. Yes, yes. No, I, think, I think dry needling has helped has helped me a lot. In having a good palpation skill. Right. Okay. So dry needling has actually helped you with your your palpation skill than than the yes, other way around. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. yeah. Well, that, that's that, that's great, and and I didn't give you the answers there, and that's exactly what I say on my courses that you've got to practice, 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 and improve your. Uh, you, you really, for dry needling, as you said, it's actually a, a fairly straightforward procedure. It's what happens before the, to be able to diagnose somebody that matters, and then after that. It's uh, practicing the actual technique itself. So uh, you, you're spot on, and uh, thank you for that advice. Now, um, I'm going to let you go now because you've been very kind to us, even though that you're uh, not feeling 100%. You sound like you need to uh, have uh, some uh, maybe uh, 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 some lozenges and uh, soothe that throat and uh, have a, a bit of a rest today. So thank you very much, Orlando. We really appreciate your time, and uh, I hope that we can talk again uh, when you're feeling a bit better and you've got some more exciting news about research that you're currently conducting. Thank you very much for your invitation. Thank you a lot. Um, of course, you can count on me any, any other time. Well, thank you very much, Orlando, and uh, have a good morning and uh, speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
So, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our webinar for tonight. And uh, just to let you know, there's a, a couple of uh, prizes as well that we need to talk about. So uh, one of those is the $200 AccuNeeds prize. So uh, someone will be winning that. Some lucky winner will be winning $200 worth of AccuNeeds um, supplies. So needles or whatever you need from AccuNeeds. We'll be drawing that in the next uh, day or so, probably early next week. I'll send you a link to uh, find out if you've won. And of course, the book um, by Gordon Taylor and Michael Harris, uh, Medical Statistics Made Easy. There will be a lucky winner for that and uh, a link to purchase the book if you uh, want to. So what's left for me, I've just to let you know that I've also um, uh, had an interview with another person uh, that's uh, of great interest to me, uh, Professor Hélène Langevin. And she's done a lot of research on fibroblast activity and how that relates to fascia and dry needling. And uh, it's going to be a really fantastic listen. I'm preparing that right now, and uh, I'll be putting that up on our um, iTunes channel, and I'll send you a link about that once it's ready. So stay tuned for more of these uh, webinars. I hope you enjoyed tonight. I know I did, and thank you very much, and good night. CPD Health Courses. Dry needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face -face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com.